Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for December 2011. I am writer-critic-put-a-dot-com at the end of what I'm about to say, Lee Zachariah. And here as always is... Yeah, you're always pipping. Uh, hi, I'm uh, writer-director-cinemaviscera.com, uh, Paul Anthony That Nelson. was shameless. <laughs> and with us this month is our special guest... Oh, do I have to introduce myself? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. We don't do it for you. Really? Uh, okay. I'm, um, Christ, what am I? I'm a writer, hyphen, reviewer, hyphen, as you know, I think I'm overreaching myself there. We'll go with write and, <laughs> writer, hyphen, reviewer, Mike Bartlett. Welcome, welcome. Thank that you. That wasn't overreached. It, was it? No. No, no, I thought that was fine. I, I, th- I just thought I could go for a second hyphen, but... Uh, yeah, you're a writer, well, reviewer. It's two We're different disciplines. You write, you know, the young adult... Stories? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I was hoping, hoping for a, something, a third one to sneak in there. Yeah. yeah. Basketball mm. play is not going to get it done. Not today. No. No, I was never... I had the height, but uh, neither the talent nor the interest. <laughs> one other person who doesn't play basketball... Now, that's we do those sorts of segues. Oh, okay, that's yeah, good. So yeah. If you was, uh, did, did you have that written down beforehand? Uh, no, no. That's <laughs> just, I didn't, don't know where that came from. <laughs> right off the top of his head. Wow, yeah, yeah. amazing. It's talented uh, work. So someone else who's really bad at segues is Tintin, the Belgian reporter. <laughs> I actually <laughs> think Tintin's very good at segues. I think he would be. He's, <gasps> a, he's a working journalist. Mm-hmm. You don't block, yeah. you just flow. You've got to flow. Come okay. on, this is improv. <laughs> Man has a typewriter. Do you have a typewriter? <laughs> I could get one. <laughs> it's uh, such a relief to see a Spielberg film and not have to say look it was absolutely great but Mm, mm. I'm a little shocked at how much I enjoy The Adventures of Tintin because A I've never been into the books Mm -hmm. secondly I hate motion capture generally if it's not you know played by any circus which he kind of is in this but hey thirdly um, I'm not a big 3D guy and I've got to tell you like we sat front row to see this Mm -hmm. and it never bothered me it's a comic book but it's set in a recognisable historical time. And I think the, the motion capture and the 3D work imperfectly because I think without the 3D, it would feel like a flat animation mm. to a certain extent. But the 3D really brings it out. Um, and so you've kind of got this real world that's real but not. And it's directed by Spielberg with a brevity and a pace of which I've not seen from him in years. I think, yeah, the pace certainly is impressive. And it was the first film in ages where I actually wanted another half hour <laughs> I think it, it sort of finished and I was going oh, no I'm still going come yeah. on let's, let's keep going whereas usually I'd be looking at my watch and as for that classic Spielberg feel it's it really felt like the film that um, the fourth Indiana Jones wasn't oh mm. didn't it you know and it really got me as excited about what adventure films can do yeah um, in the same way that watching Raiders of the Lost Ark again does mm. yeah. yeah it's it's such a fantastic film and it's it feels like such a pure look into Spielberg's mind, the type mm. of film that only exists in his head that, until the technology caught up to him. How uh, good is that six-minute one-take? At the end of Tintin? Yes. yes. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've seen it twice now, and the second time through was just it's even more impressive. Just I don't think I even noticed it was just one take the first time, mm-hmm. other than just feeling that I was on a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And it's one of those real moments where you go, I want to be in there. You know, I, want, I, want to be there. <laughs> I want to be doing that. Yeah. So the other Spielberg film... Because uh, he, he likes to put <laughs> out two at a time. Oh, look, I preferred Tintin, but you know what? War Horse, I really loved. Uh, really? Yeah, I really yeah. did. Really? Tugs at my heartstrings the way <laughs> only Spielberg with accompaniment by John Williams can do. Yeah. I didn't hate it. Yeah. I found it utterly predictable and sentimental. 
But I didn't hate it because of that, and I it really got me. Um, I think I, I, did, I was happy to go on that journey. There's probably a couple of segments too too many in there. Yeah, yeah. That I'd, I'd probably trim down, but um, yeah, I, I you know I cried. I cried real tears during that film. I didn't hate it. <laughs> That'll be on the well. Poster. Yeah, yeah uh, I think I did. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, look, this to me perfectly illustrates the best and worst of Spielberg. Mm. Tintin is everything the best about Spielberg. It's that it's <clears throat> it's the high adventure. It's the breathless filmmaking. It's the vicarious thrill. It's the uh, empathy, instant empathy with mm. characters. Whereas Warhorse, I'm convinced he made this film because he wanted to get his John Ford on. Like the film is just wall to wall John Ford references, particularly visually. Mm. But I just found this really, really overly sentimental. I found it mawkish, as you say, predictable. I loved my favourite stuff was uh, Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch's little game. No, I agree. Yeah, you were waiting for that to go somewhere. Yeah, Yeah. and it went nowhere. And it's because again, it's the horse's story. But you know what? I'm not that interested in the horse. And which is a problem with a film called War. (laughs) I I don't like horses. I don't really see the appeal in horses. You know, that silly hair, the long faces. (laughs) But I, I still, I felt sorry for the horse. I cried for that horse. Yeah. <laughs> well, two months ago, we were talking Gus Van Sant. And we had tried, without success, to see Restless, his newest film, in time for that. It's really good that we didn't. Because uh, <laughs> Restless is... I, I don't even have the words. It, it feels like a first-year film student. Uh, film. It, there's none of none of sort of Van Sant's style. The only person who really comes out of it with an indignity is uh, Mia Wachowska. Come, come on, do it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was Wasikowska. Was okay. I've heard it so many different times. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> it was like trying to spell Tarkovsky last month. Um, <laughs> it's just a baffling, bafflingly bad movie. Wow. Uh, the uh, the lead guy. I don't know. He's apparently Dennis Hopper's son. Yeah, Henry Hopper. Yeah, and not as I thought, the son of James Franco and Napoleon Dynamite, um, <laughs> which is what you get after watching it. You're like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's his lineage. But um, look, maybe maybe he's a great actor, and uh, this did no favors for him. I realized that the three worst films I'd seen all year all revolve around somebody talking to dead people because the kid in this now this is what I was trying to figure out you put this little I did mention it on the last site last week and I got Hereafter because I know that's Hereafter is the worst film I saw all year uh, Restless is pretty close but the other one is The Iron Lady also oh, yeah, 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 yeah. in which Maggie Thatcher spends most of the film for some reason talking to the ghost of her dad, yeah. dead husband well I think the reason for that to me was, was quite clear it's that you've got a character who is uh, basically inhuman and unlikable. How can you possibly make this Iron Lady sympathetic? Well, you make her kind of dottery and you know, give, you give her dementia and you give her a dead husband. Mm. And I had this little pang of emotion. And I went, oh, that's sad. And I went, no, it's Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> and, and I felt really conned. But well, she, she was did have dementia beloved. towards the end of the Well, she, she did, but I don't know why you'd want to focus on that, whether you love her or hate her. Mm. I, that seems like the least interesting part of her life. And her legacy. And the thing is, she kept getting re-elected. There are still people who think of her in positive terms. Um, I don't think any of those people are in this room. But the thing is, she was beloved, and I went in hoping to find out why. I mm. wanted to see what it was no, about her that really... And I didn't get any of that. I came out... not If I didn't know anything about her beforehand, I wouldn't know if she was left, if she was right. Yeah, oh. the, There are so many people who were scared it was going to be 
right-wing propaganda. And I came out thinking I would have preferred right-wing propaganda because it would have been about something. Yeah, I didn't really find anything out about her and the feel of it was so weird. And I mm. guess it's because of the stuff with Dennis that to me it felt like it was sort of a, a late-life romantic comedy mm. where her, you know, her quirk as the quirky leading lady is that she starts riots. <laughs> oh Maggie yeah, you know. Last chance Maggie <laughs> you know. Oh wow She's that's so lovable <laughs> But Oh those minors Yeah Well what do you expect From the director of Mamma Mia Seriously <laughs> At least a song I, I would have been Satisfied with a song <laughs> On the theme of Directors you don't expect Anything from My My Intense dislike Of Lars von Trier Is well documented um, It's it's gotten to the point where I enjoy it. I enjoy, you know, even a, I, several films ago, I swore I'd never see another one of his films. And that's part of the fun for me. I've, I've sort of come to appreciate that relationship I have with him. Oh, hey. Lars von Trier is such a bastard that he couldn't let me have that. He couldn't let me enjoy the antagonism. <laughs> he had to go and make one of the best films of the year in Melancholia. And I am so angry at him. I can't <laughs> even tell you. Because I, I don't have that anymore. I don't have that... Well played, Lars. Is all mm. like yeah, he did it, bastard. Is, this film, I, I'm, I'm a Von Trier fan. I thought this film was incredible. It starts and ends with arguably the best opening and closing shots of the year. It's so immersively, heart wrenchingly, powerfully good and big. And the idea of a planet, something elemental, is quite inspired and quite true it's something that doesn't go away and pulls you in, in a literal you know it sort of begins to go away but keeps you in its gravitational pull and destroys you and 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 shifts you and warps you and it's god this film is amazing i've actually liked it a lot more as time has gone on i think i found it a little frustrating in the cinema and then over the next couple of days it really sat with me and it's developed but as you say i like the the way that uh, depression is depicted at first as the realist thing. And in the first half, you felt that she was sort of being drawn to the darkness. You know, mm. it's all those shots of her looking up in the sky and felt that she was being drawn to the darkness. Whereas in the second half, it's like it switches the sympathy and she's actually drawing the darkness in. Mm. Um, but a very powerful depiction of depression, particularly mm. in the way that uh, it affects the people around um, the, the sufferer as well. I thought that was really quite convincing. Mm. I mean, I've known a few people to suffer from depression and had vague ex experience with it myself a little bit and it's that sort of the her reactions in the second half a lot of people are taking a, a lot of people see that character as bitchy it's like no it's mm. actually pretty accurate yeah. That's, yeah i i feel that each character each of the four major characters are a person's approach to depression where mm. it, you're kirsten dunst who's the sort of resign uh, kind of this resigned acceptance just let it happen you know, and then you got Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's fearful and frightening against, fighting mm. against it, pushing against it the whole time. And then there's Kiefer Sutherland's character, who is trying to explain it away with science. Yeah, mm. I just keep hearing totally different interpretations of it, mm. and everyone fits. <laughs> it's 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 a great template for it. So, full credit, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad for a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Another auteur, uh, well-known auteur. Uh, who I haven't actually seen anything from, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit. Pedro Almodovar. Pedro. The Skin I Live In. My first experience with wow. this Yeah, I know. It's ba basically been a comedy of errors, me trying to get to his films <laughs> in the past, <laughs> and always failing. 
and uh, this was the first. And God, what a film to start with! How good is it? Extraordinary. It's so beautifully composed and so um, thematically rich and kooky and haunting. Gothic horror melodrama. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny. Yeah, it's. I found it was it was. Horror more in its trappings and its themes mm. and its actual execution. As you say, its execution is more melodrama, more revenge drama. Almost. I've, I felt this was almost a story worthy of Park Chan-wook. Yeah. In terms of dealing with identity, vengeance, and consequence. And I thought that was really interesting territory for El Motivar to step into. It still has his, you know, his lush visual touch. and his. Mm. It's great to see Antonio working with him again and the two of them just hitting it out of the park. You saw The Yellow Sea? I did. It's a Korean action drama, mm. um, as unhinged as all good Korean action films should be. South Korean, I should add. Um, it's from a guy named Na Hong Jin, who made a film a couple of years ago called The Chaser, mm. which was one of the most confident de- writing-directing debuts I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, the Yellow Sea, I've got to say, uh, fulfills the promise. It's mm. so um, wonderfully kinetic and visceral and... It's about a cab driver who is contracted to uh, fly from China to Korea and hit a gangster and then leave. Um, but, of course, after the the execution doesn't quite go the way you think it's going to go, and then he tries to get out. And, of course, every road out of South Korea is blocked by these people who have set him up, and he's, of course, been set up to be the patsy. Like a lot of Korean action films, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of groups of, of gangsters and cops all sort of converging and and chasing each other. But there's a couple of things I really, really love about this film that make it unique. One, there's virtually not a gun in this in the entire film. Mm. The Every single character uses knives, hatchets. It's a very stabby, blady type film, and it's very different to see. The other thing I love about it is it manages to make social commentary without even trying. There's This film says more about boat people and about mm. refugeeism and about country's treatment of refugees and marginalisation of them than any you know, Screen Australia funded wheat fest um, <laughs> you can possibly see um, this is a cracker of a film it's so, so great what did you think, Lee? Uh, I love it, It's um, we'll be doing our top 5 of the year in a moment uh, if we'd done a top 6 I'd be talking about it then, this guy is extraordinary, I mean I still The Chaser is you know one of the best first films ever made and as you say this fulfils the promise, this is so extraordinary. And just the fact how much action he can get out of a guy. It, it sounds weird to say, a guy just running away from some cops. Mm. And how much excitement. And you're watching it going, wow, hang on, why isn't all action like this? <laughs> That's the thing. It's just he's got such a great grasp of character stakes and plot machinations. You come up with stuff that not only did you never see coming, that wouldn't even think of seeing coming. It's mm. like, why would someone do that? But it just seems so perfect and natural within the worlds he creates. He's such a... The kind of confidence so rarely seen by somebody after their first two features. Like, I think you've got to go back to Guy Ritchie or Quentin Tarantino Mm. to find somebody with this level of confidence in their first two films. Yeah. But there is a Hollywood action film which has kind of lived up to the promise that you hope when you go in. Mm. And that's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Mm. Yes. The fourth film... And I really, really like that three quarters of the Mission Impossible franchise is now really good. <laughs> I, the more we can turn that Mission Impossible 2 into a small percentage. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say, I haven't seen number three because uh, number two was so awful. Mm. 
that I think when I saw there was a Mission Impossible 3, I couldn't quite understand why. And I didn't know who was going to go see that, but apparently it is quite good, so mm. I'll rectify that. I loved, I loved the new one. The most exciting bit is, is in the middle, yeah. admittedly, but what an exciting bit it is. I mean, the whole sequence with the skyscraper is just fantastic. And I've heard so many people say about you know, how sweaty their palms were. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but I really enjoyed but it. But Brad Bird is just amazing at setting up, put, placing all the, the things you need to set up an action sequence and then paying them off in the most exciting way possible. Mm. It's, like, it's like watching him play, I don't know, bowls, 10-pin uh, bowling. Mm. Uh, it's just beautiful. It's look, we've always known Brad Bird's a bit of a genius with story mm. from his animated films, but the, just the confident again, this confidence and this grasp of taking this big movie and beautifully directing action scenes cohesively. And mm. I really love the Mission Impossible film concept. I think it's the one genuinely viable sequel property out there. Like, because you can always rotate new actors through, you can always make it a completely different plot and completely different reason dynamics with the team. And if you get a Mission Impossible film right, you're pretty much going to be in my top 20 of the year. And <laughs> this has done it. I love that they've set up a, a team now, a team that can go to a new movie yeah. rather than every member is disposable. Mm. Like, I really feel like Cruz, Renner, Peg, and Patton are going to come back for the next one. And I had a ball during this film. Yeah. And some great gadgetry, too. That yes. sequence with the. Um the sort of 3D illusion. Yes, the yes. Kremlin. Yeah, the Kremlin. That was fantastic. Yeah. Although it was interesting watching that and realising that so much of the gadgetry now, that sort of high-tech stuff that you used to get in Bond films, is now just sold by them having an iPhone and an iPad. Yeah. yeah. So, wow, this amazing high-tech device that you can touch with your finger. Oh, it's just <laughs> an I'll, iPad. I love contrasting it to Minority Report. Tom Cruise using this one, oh, wow, touch screen, and he's moving things <laughs> with his fingers, yeah, yeah. and now he just whips out his iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so with the iPhone, I like that bit in the uh, opening sequence with that app that tells you if there's an assassin. <laughs> <laughs> I want I mean, that app. That's great. I think that would be really useful. Well, it is December, and... 2011 is almost behind us, so it seems like an opportune time to talk about our best films of uh, 2011. Now, we're all going to count off a top five here, and being a gracious host, as Lee and I are, well, I'm just out of turn for Lee, I just might be, uh, we're going to let Mike reel off his uh, top five of 2011 first. Uh, Now, we we want theatre, we want suspense, so let's count it down from number five. Right, well, I I feel the need to disappoint you slightly, because I just can't do lists. I'm really? no good with lists. I, I know it's like essential in a critic. Yes. And people get very excited about doing lists. I just can't do them. I don't have that part of my brain that allows me to go, that was a better film than that one. <laughs> I can go, I liked this thing about that film. I like this thing about that film. But I find it really hard to actually do a top ten. If you don't have OCD, then why are you a film reviewer? I know. <laughs> I, I don't know what's happened. You know, and, and you know, I'm, I've been a lifelong Doctor Who fan, which shortly marks me as some grade autistic. <laughs> but uh, I, I can give you five films that I really quite like. <laughs> in no particular in order. order. In no particular order. Probably, I'll start with the Australian film that I like the most this year, and that was actually The Hunter. Wow. wow. Right. Yeah. And I just, I really, there was something about that film that I really liked. I liked the fact that it felt recognisably Australian, but still had an international flavour to it, mm. mainly because Willem Dafoe was in it. I thought it was beautifully shot. It gave you a real sense of place. Um, and I, I was really engaged with the story too. I, uh, I just a perfectly small scale little story that had these larger scale kind of tendrils coming off it. A similar kind of film in some ways that's, that certainly in, in my five would be True Grit, which I, I just, I loved that film. Actually, weirdly to me, it felt like a classic kids' film. Mm, it just had that that kind of campfire kind of story quality to it. So much so that I actually 
kind of regretted the levels of violence that they had mm-hmm. in that film. And I know that it's it's about that sort of hard, horrible world and how tough it actually was to 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 live there. But in some ways, I think if they'd toned down the violence, you've got a fantastic family film there. <laughs> I think it's a film that you really could show to anyone. Uh, also, in my five, it has to be Tintin. Wow. Yes, I, I just love that film. It's 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 the adventure film I've enjoyed most in years. And as I, I was saying before, the one that just flew by. Also, there a film I've seen very recently has to be The Artist. Yes, it was a film that snuck up on me. I'd sort of heard mentions of it. I didn't really look into it at all. All I knew was that it was uh, it was French. It was in black and white. It was silent, and it was called The Artist. <laughs> And none of those things made me look forward to it. I mean, I, I thought it was going to be a really tedious couple of hours appreciating someone's fantastic cinematic pretensions. <laughs> but it's so funny and so warm and just... Uh, I, I can't it's imagine... Gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, it's, it was literally, again, something that you thought you could uh, show to absolutely anyone. Yeah. It's beautifully done. An absolutely beautiful film that deserves the many plaudits that I suspect are, are coming its way. Um, how many is that? Is that four? That's four. That's One four. More. Come on, you can do it. Right. <laughs> um, so I'll probably go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes. Uh, it's a clever film. It's a, it's a slightly cold film, but it's, it's populated with such a fantastic cast, for one thing. The characters and the way that their story is told in, in such a minimalist, subtle fashion, I found strangely compelling. And, and I've seen it twice now, and there's so many more little details that really came out in the second, um, second viewing. So, no, I love that film. That's quite a, yeah. quite a solid top five. So, uh, Lee... Lay him down. All right. Now, just, yeah, I uh, don't even try to work out what rules I'm following in terms of when films are released. They're all over the shop, and just to make my life easier, I'm not including docos. All right? That's a whole other thing. So, But you're putting Lawrence of Arabia in there, which I thought was strange. Uh, like I said, release dates don't mean anything to me. <laughs> all right. Number five is Drive, mostly because it rhymes, but also <laughs> it's the most tonally balanced film. It's just perfect. Uh, number four is The Artist. And I agree, it's pure joy. It's it's an absolute love letter to classic Hollywood. It's so steeped in nostalgia. Number three is actually a film that is a cautionary tale about nostalgia. It's Midnight in Paris. It's uh, not what I was expecting from Woody at all, given he's somebody who I think, I would assume, would keep looking back at the past and saying, you know what, it used to be better then. Mm. And here he's saying, no, 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 we just think it was. Just be happy living where you are now, because it's actually pretty great, and you'll miss all the great stuff passing you by. Number two is Tree of Life. The treatise on life that really... Treatise. It's a treatise. (laughs) Treatise Treatise of life. That should be the headline. Treatise of life. (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) And you think, you know, how how is Terrence Malick going to talk about the entirety of existence without slipping into parody? And he does it by focusing on the micro. And he goes in really, really small to show how big everything is. Number one. My number one film of the year. (laughs) I just saw the look of recognition on Paul's face. I think I know what this is going to be. Does it involve a car ride with two incredibly annoying people? It sure does. (gasps) Oh, man. My number one film of the year is... It's certified copy. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to say due date. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing That does fit That does fit as well My favourite film of the year Is Due Date Due Date Yeah I almost Yes If I really want to screw with you It would have been a tie with Winnie To talk about Kevin But I I considered that No I think I think the theme of 2011 Was perception 
Uh, Midnight in Paris, this is not a film we need to talk about. Kevin, Sleeping Beauty, uh, Beginners, Melancholia, it's all about how we perceive things. Beginners. I would throw Drive in there as well. Drive, mm. yeah, mm. absolutely. Uh, I just, on, honestly, I've got them written down here. I just stopped writing them down because I mm. kept finding them. And for me, no film did this better than Certified Copy. It hit me on every possible level, aesthetically, intellectually, emotionally. It was the most surprising film I'd seen all year and there was not a second of it that I didn't love. So that was my number one. And I'm sorry, Paul. Wow. Can we still be friends? Wow. (laughs) Uh, We might have to go on a bickering car ride around Tuscany first. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If Tron Legacy is your number one, I'll know it's revenge, by the way. (laughs) Thankfully, that fell into last year. My top five of the year, look, my number five is Tree of Life. I almost feel like the bookends almost do slip into parody, Malik parody. Um, without the bookends, it would have been perfection. But I love once we start getting into the history of the universe, he starts off at the macro and then gets us to the micro mm. and shows us that within our own lives, we're all, we all inhabit our own universes. And each action has effects that are equally as seismic to our own lives and existence and those around us as the macro is to planets and forms of life and... Brad Pitt gives what is for me the most heartbreaking performance of the year in that mm. film. I know a lot of people are talking about him in Moneyball, but this was the film that just he broke my heart. Yeah, and this is one of the this is probably the film that made me cry the most mm. this year. Number four uh, is a film that I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival. It's a film called Tyrannosaur, and it's the writing and directing debut of Paddy Considine, who's a brilliant actor who's been in stuff like Dead Man's Shoes and Hot Fuzz and various things but this just proves why the Brits are so good at social realism and sets up a situation that shatters you and frightens you and moves you but also finds room for there's touches of humour it just feels like it comes from a place of truth and Olivia Coleman, the standout female performance of the year it's one of the best British social realist dramas I've ever ever seen Number three is, a f- is another film I saw at Myth that I'm not sure is going to get a cinema release out here. But it's a film I was keenly anticipating, and unlike most films I keenly anticipate, it didn't disappoint. For a while, I've wanted to see somebody really nail the real-world superhero mythos and really nail the psychosis that becoming a real-life superhero would entail. And for me, James Gunn's super does it in spades and as far as there are so many films this year that kind of claim to be exploitation films or claim to be kind of gritty or claim to be outrageous and just didn't touch the sides Super has several what the fuck scenes Mm. (laughs) where you just think he's not going to go there oh my god he just went there or places like I said with the LOC before places like you don't even know someone would go but Mm. they go there anyway and Super is, is an amazing film my number two for the year is Melancholia for reasons illustrated earlier mm-hmm. um, I think look as someone who's a fan of Lars von Trier I think it's his best work since Breaking the Waves and my number one film of 2011 another myth film which we get on February 2nd next year and it just edges out ma- Melancholia by the slimmest of margins is Martha Marcy May Marley ah, wow okay no film shattered me more getting to the end credits. And that includes Melancholia's final shot, which mm. takes some beating mm. when it comes to shattering Denouement. It's so beautiful and yet 
harsh. It's so subtle yet powerful. It's a film of contrast, which is interesting because the film spends its time juxtaposing between two situations and seeing the commonalities. But no film turns on its head so effectively at a certain point. It went from a film that's like, this is this creeping dread and this is kind of an interesting outside study of a psychology to this film is scaring the shit out of me more than any horror film I've seen in five, ten years. It gets that visceral. And from a first-time writer-director, my God, it's just shy of a masterpiece. Mm. So there you go. There you have it, guys. That's our... Uh, that's our top five, so... I feel an immense sense of relief now. That <laughs> <laughs> it's out of the, the OCD is out of the way. You had that little <laughs> dip in what it's like for Lee and I in our everyday life. All right, Mr. Bartlett, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for hyphenates, filmmaker of right. the month. Well, I've reached deep into the uh, directing hat, and uh, I've pulled out Terry Gilliam. He's just a director that I think influenced me from a really young age, just in, obviously not the kind of films that I make, because I don't make films, but in the kind of films that I like, mm. the kind of books that I like, television that I like, that slightly skewed vision of the world, and that sense that the world is slightly more interesting and um, astounding than it seems, particularly when you're a kid. So I thought it'd be really interesting to go back and watch his films and see how his style has evolved. So, I, and I suppose the the obvious place to start talking about him is with... Monty Python, yeah, yeah, um, both the TV series and, of course, the Holy Grail. Uh, yeah, Holy Grail's his first directorial credit. Yeah, yeah that's for right. The, for the show, it was just the animation. It was, it was, and they were very much his product. And I think it's, I guess, when I think about his films, I do remember those animations as being the bit of the TV series that one I didn't particularly like, and two really freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> You're never sure with the co-directing effort, particularly mm. two directors who are uh, often as. At odds, yeah. as Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, mm. that you know who's who, who's who's rubbing off more here. Yeah. But as you see his subsequent films, you start to realise no, there's a lot of Gilliam. There in is, there. isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, that sort of sense of silliness, I think. Sense of and silliness and darkness and ugliness. Yeah. For a director who's famed for his visual style and his visual kind of gymnastics, his stuff is—he's not afraid to ugly stuff up, mm. as we see frequently throughout his career but that sort of style is quite evident in his first solo effort yeah uh, Jabberwocky yeah mm. it's a messy film yeah it is but it's so much fun and it's yeah. so I, I honestly have so much affection for it and I, I think I just love the way he, he paints that family that that um that has the daughter that Taylor's <laughs> characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Family. Fish finger or something, is it that? Yeah, the yes. fish fingers, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's just, and it kind of informs a lot of how he sees various parts of society. He has such an affectionate contempt. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, like, he, he has, I think it's genuine contempt, but it's so sweet. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's it has a surprisingly clean hero's journey kind of structure. Yeah, yeah. Gets pretty mental at times, and there are some nice sequences with the monster and with people mm. being torn yeah. apart. Yeah, it's to me, it's um, it's a halfway uh, point for him. It's you know, mm. it's in it's stepping into yeah. filmmaking, and it's the work of someone who's obviously very talented but doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah, um, and I think it's definitely his voice though. Like, yeah, and it's his voice distinct from the Pythons. And mm. yeah, there are some tendrils connecting him to Python, but. As we move on to Time Bandits. Yeah, in 81, that's when the voice really comes to the yeah. fore. When that's definitely the first film of his that I saw, yeah. and probably the one that had the greatest effect on me. I, I think I was probably five or six when I saw that. 
I love. I still love that film. It's got a cleanliness uh, of, of storytelling to it, the cleanness of storytelling to it. It's such a great idea. This kid is woken in the, in the middle of the night by some time-travelling uh, dwarves bashing through his bedroom wall and taking him on a, a magical quest you know, through, through history. What, what idea is better than that? It's a fantastic <laughs> idea. You're never quite watching it again. It doesn't entirely live up to, I think, the, the potential in that premise. Yeah. Mm. But it's still just such a wonderful journey. Yeah. And I like the fact that the first half of the film is kind of skipping from location to location because that's what you want. If you had this exactly. fantastic map, you'd go, all and let's go here, let's go there. It's funny you say clean storytelling because I find it really messy. Really? Yeah. I, I find that it's a film of vignettes and yeah. as such doesn't really hang together as a story. There's times, like particularly with things like the Titanic, I'm like, why are we even here? What, how is this part of it? Right, place? yeah. Um, and I think it just goes off on weird detours and then we've got, you know, the kid kind of wanting to be adopted by Sean Connery's king and, yeah. and yeah. then we're off. And it's it's all a bit kind of formless. But the, um, I think that mm. the appeal of that is that it's not somebody saying, what's the sort of thing that kids would like? It's a 45-year-old kid going, what yeah. do I like? Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's what's so pure about it, I think. I, I think, yeah, it is that, that sense of purity. It's just a pure idea. I've got this map. I'm going to go and see the stuff I want to see. And it's, it's yeah. not necessarily the stuff that, as, um, as Lee says, that a kid would want to. I think this is where he really starts with the striking imagery. Mm. Mm. It can't come out of anyone else's head but Gilliam's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the giants with the ships on their heads. And yes. Beautiful. Yeah, like, it's oh. fantastic, yeah. isn't it? And that also just the scene of shattering the, uh, the barrier. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the evil's world. And as a kid, I thought the line, so that's what an invisible barrier looks like, was the funniest thing you could possibly <laughs> say. <laughs> Yeah, it's that, yeah, and it really appeals to you as a kid. Yeah, all those, and, and as you say, you know, all those images of yeah. the shattering and the yeah, no, and just the parents being so unapologetically horrible. They are, and the the ending is really interesting too. Um, mm. The and he hasn't got it quite right. I think. Mm. I think it just it just takes a slight reversal to make make the ending right. Yeah, and yeah. He, you can blow up the parents. That's fine because, as you said, they're. Um, I apologise for spoiling this film for anyone who hasn't seen it. Seen it, but. Um, as you said, they're unapologetically awful, mm. so we don't mind them getting blown up. But I think it then, after that, you need the moment of the fireman putting his hand yep. on the kid's shoulder and going, oh, Kevin, it's all right, I'm Sean Connery. Yeah. And that's a nice kind of ending. His next one is Crimson Permanent Assurance in 83, the short film yeah, yeah. that preceded <laughs> Meaning of Life, which I adore uh, because absolutely. the short film then invades the feature about halfway <laughs> through the feature. <laughs> Like a pirate ship that yeah. hijacks <laughs> a pirate ship genius. building firing filing cabinets. Yeah, it's, it's genius. genius. It's so, yeah. And again, all those just those incongruous ideas and imagery and the, you know, the buildings and the yeah. old men. And the, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. But then we come to 1985's Brazil. Mm. Now he doesn't exactly pump them out, does he? There's a, f- there's a feature every four years at this He point. doesn't, but uh, he takes his time to get them right, mm. I think. And uh, <laughs> Knowing him, he takes his time to get them up. This is... Well, hello. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. What a masterpiece Brazil is. It is. What I almost find it hard to talk about because it's such yeah. a clear expression of his kind of vision for film, I think, that I almost feel bad putting my own take on it. I think mm. it's, it's just it's his film, particularly if, if you're watching the version that obviously he, he sort of approved. I, I think everyone else thinks it's a film about the future. I get the impression Gilliam thinks it's a film about the present. Yeah. It's it, it's just everything slightly... Ex- you almost get the impression mm. that's how he sees the world. Yeah. This nightmare of bureaucracy where, that invades everything throughout these pipes mm. and any anything that deviates from the norm is feared and, and courted. Mm. 
And that and that somebody that doesn't follow bureaucracy and just gets in there and fixes things is some sort of revolutionary. Yeah, what a great concept. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um there's look, I I do think as much as the director's cut is a little long. I think I think there are times where it does kind of drag a little bit. But it's so packed with amazing ideas and passion and visual ingenuity and great performances that it's hard to begrudge it. Mm-hmm. It's um it seems like his signature statement on 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 the world as it is. Yeah, it doesn't feel like science fiction, I think is what I mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. about it. Um as, as you're saying, Lee, it doesn't seem set in the future. I think Gilliam himself just said it's set in the 20th, 20th century, so you've got mm. these sort of elements and the costumes actually, that the start of 1940s. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. But, uh, but with Gilliam, it's never that far from, from actual reality. Yeah. And that we can really um, identify with the Jonathan Price character mm. as someone who's not really a hero in the sense that they're still they're part of the problem. In the sense that we probably are all part of the problem mm. yeah, as well. But the, the system is rigged in such a way that to not become part of the problem is to completely divorce yourself mm. from everyday life yeah. from yeah. everyone around you which yeah. is often too difficult which, to which is Gilliam's version of sanity I think yeah, yeah. that's what he's saying you know to be tr- truly sane you have to do what society thinks is insane and get away from society exactly exactly because 1988 the unfairly maligned where its quality is often tied to its it's generally considered to be a failure and I think that's because it didn't make a lot of money. Mm. But Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Mm. This was the surprise. Yeah. Amongst the bunch. I love this film. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought this was perfectly pitched. It's narrative is clean where where time balance was messy. It's like even though it jumps low Carl's, there's there feels like there's a logic and a drive mm. to it. Look, I mean it even looks spectacular today. Just giving a lot of offbeat actors lead roles and I just found this just a just a pure delight. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because I find it, Baron Munchausen drives me crazy. I, can't, <laughs> I really can't get into it. I can appreciate it and I go, oh, that's, that's, what amazing visuals. But it just doesn't quite make sense for me. It doesn't quite wow. flow. Even a little thing like, um, you know, when they're sailing up to the moon and then there's some problem with the, the boats that they end up on the water and then they end up on the moon. I'm going, well, why don't they just crash into the moon? It's kind of, uh, <laughs> so I, I guess I'm looking for sense where clearly there is sense none. Sense doesn't apply. Um, yeah. I, I find that a messy film and it takes too long to get going which is uh, something that I think might come up in discussion in some of his other films as well mm. the real story that I sort of wanted from there is, is it feels kind of buried for me I think I, I want to go on that journey with him I want to have more exciting adventures but they, to me they don't take up enough of the film and I, I, I don't really get a sense of of uh, being taken along for the ride there or, or, okay. or where we're going or even why it all comes together in the end it's, it's a film that sort of puzzles me Wow! Look, as somebody who who deifies Brazil to a certain extent, yep. um, I I do find it hard to say this, but to me, I think his best film is almost ninety one's The Fisher King. <gasps> wow! Yeah, yeah. I'm I still going to call Brazil his best film, but secretly, I'm going to think it's Fisher King. I'm I'm probably going to agree with you. Really? Yeah. I I adore The Fisher King because it's. It's edging closer to the real world, I think. Mm-hmm. And there are some really interesting issues there that are just uh, explored with unusual clarity from him, I think. Um, they're definitely, he definitely feels like there's a leash. In yeah. Way. yeah. And I, <coughs> I, I, I'm almost hesitant to suggest it's because he didn't write the script. Yeah. And I think that, that the film has a backbone, a sort of reliable backbone that perhaps some of his other work doesn't. I'm often asked... Uh, 
who would you pick if you were a guest on, on Hyphenates as a director? Mm. And I don't know what my answer is, but one of the possibilities has always been Gilliam. Yeah. And one of the reasons is that when I see a film like Fisher King, I, I, I think he's one of the most underrated directors in modern times because if you look go through that film, the story of Fisher King is not just being told in an overt um, surface manner. He is telling that story through colour, through lighting, mm. through vertical lines and horizontal. You know, there are shadows that show you who is in, who is jailed in and trapped in their lives and light will suddenly appear behind the heads of characters to show that they are angels. They, yeah, are, yeah, they yeah. are the chosen people. The film works on so many, even down to casting, where certain characters are cast to look like one another to indicate that oh, there's a killer in the film and, yeah. and you never really interact with him. He's just mentioned and there are characters who are cast to look like him to show that these people are in our everyday lives. There is so much going on. It's one of the most complex films I think I've ever seen. Mm. And every time I see it, these things just they just unravel. There's a lot of layers to, to mm. unpick there. Yeah. Can I be the odd man on this one? Please do. Yeah. I loved this film when I saw it in cinemas for the first time when I was 16. It just really got to me and blew me away. I haven't revisited it since until last week and I hate to say I think it's one of the most dated there's so much going on visually that that sort of the the mentally ill characters feel like caricatures it feels very over the top there's stuff about it I really like I love Jeff Bridges' performance like it's funny because growing up I was blown blown away by Robin Williams Mm. and for some reason Mercedes Rule who won the Oscar and now I look at it and think were they just giving out Oscars at this point? Oh are you kidding? (laughs) Like (laughs) she's just amazing in it Broad, average, brassy Italian American. No, no, no. It's you know, so much sort of more angel. Than that. Oh, I don't think it is. I, I just, <sighs> I just felt it was good. But and as you say, it's visually complex. Um, in terms of the casting, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll concede that too. But yeah, I just, I just found a lot of the filmmaking kind of got in my face on this film. Well, it's, it's a film that I still love, and it, it's sort of uh, one that again picks up on that idea, that theme that Lee identified of you know the best way to sanity is to is to go insane mm. um, and that it's it's a film that's happy to really blur those lines in a in a convincing way that um, you don't really need to know exactly how far we've gone from the real world and I think you also kind of know where reality is in that film yeah um, which is is to its to its benefit but yeah. his next film the streak conti- well depending on if how much well, you liked Fisher King 12 Monkeys 12 Monkeys in 95 my god yeah. I think this might be still my favourite well his. I see yeah. that this or the Fisher King I, again I find it really hard to decide which I like more I think 12 Monkeys is a fantastic film it's a clever script it's a um, it's full of genuine surprises but the surprises are coming from the storytelling rather yeah. than how he's telling the story which is, is quite unusual I think for uh, for Gilliam it's Again, uh, written by someone else gives him the freedom to just work on the visuals mm. and the, um, the world creation. Watching this, I got the impression this was kind of Gilliam's, <laughs> to, for an awkward metaphor, this is Gilliam's face-off. Okay. <laughs> face-off was the perfect marriage of John Woo's style and Hollywood conventions. Uh-huh. Mm. And this is what 12 Monkeys was for me. It was like the perfect intersection of a studio, narrative-driven, beat-the-clock yep. yeah. studio film. And Gilliam, Gilliam's worldview and visual creativity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there is so much about this film that's just so beautifully judged and hasn't dated a day for me. No, I, I think no. it's I think still, it still looks great. Yeah, yeah, it still rockets along, looks great, performances are great. 
Yeah. It's an amazing film. Um, one of the few that doesn't feature a little person in some form. This is true. I was trying to think. <laughs> is it, are there any squeezed in? He's, <laughs> I thought I was keeping my eye out because I thought, wow, it's every single one. But no, I mean, Gilliam loves... And a lot of it's the same little person. Uh, in some in some films, <laughs> yeah. But he, he really loves little people. Um, and it, it's a fun thing. But I think it's actually, yeah, it's a lot deeper. It's like somebody who looks like a child but is an adult. And and I think, you know, from given the way Gilliam mm. sees the world, it's almost like that is his ideal. It's like you can be an adult but mm. still exist in this childlike world. And I think that's a... I, I don't think he's ever shown them mockingly. Like, I don't think no. he's ever made fun of no. them. He made the, um, you know, them the main characters in Time Bandits. And so it's never sneering or or, or mocking. It's, it's quite a sincere love he mm. has. Yeah. It was interesting about the Time Bandits because obviously he's been asked why he, he, um, he used people of diminutive stature. And he said it was just so the camera was on the kid's height, eye height. Yeah. But to me, that's a disingenuous answer when he's then gone on to use them in... More it was probably correct then, and maybe, maybe went, actually that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. It was his first, so maybe just sort of hit upon something maybe and discovered the respect. Why by are getting people to using these guys all the time? And getting to know them, yeah. and maybe it came out of that. Yeah. 98's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas mm. is one of my favourites uh, that he's done. It's almost like, you know, there are some, it was like a few months ago when we were talking about um, uh, Mike Lee and Naked felt to me like a film filmmaker stepping out of his filmography to do something that just sort of stands apart from everything. And for me, mm. that's that's what Fear and Loathing is to Gilliam. I think it, it does a little bit, yeah. It's because I think Hunter S. Thompson has not, not a cynicism, but he's got a very a harsher outlook on life than Gilliam has that, that's at odds with Gilliam's innocence. And yet Gilliam was the perfect person to make this film. It's not a film I love. It's it's a film that I, I like and I appreciate. And I think it, it does well to capture that druggy mindset and that it's a bewildering film and that things seem to make sense that don't make sense and mm. things don't make sense that should make sense I mean the book is is one of those um, you know trademark unfilmable books mm. and in some ways Gillian probably is the best person to do that since he makes these unfilmable movies quite often but it never it never really holds my attention okay I was a bit like you Mike the first time I saw it but I think the more I see it the more I get out of it mm. the more I enjoy it the more I think it's a it's a damn great stab at an unfilmable walk. Mm. It's kind of like a little bit like Zack Snyder's Watchmen for me. Like it's sort of getting something that's essentially unfilmable and having a damn good crack at mm. wrestling yeah. it into yeah. some sort of filmic shape. Well, you were talking about uh, Gilliam intersecting with the studio system. That happened with 2005's Brothers Grimm. Now, was this after he first tried to make... Um, yeah, yes. after La Mancha, yes, man who shot Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah, and that is uh, if you can, yeah, see the doco Lost in La Mancha, it will turn your filmmaking for life, <laughs> break your heart. But wow, what a film! Coming off that and going to Brothers Grimm, so you sort of get that sense he just needed to make a film. Yeah, and you look at what that film is. It's you know the Brothers Grimm as con men slash crime fighters. Uh, it's with a great idea. very tail bases. Yeah. You've got Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, two really interesting young stars. This should have been his Burton style hit. This yep. should have propelled mm. him into the big leagues. And to be honest, the script isn't as bad as Alice in Wonderland, so I don't know why it didn't. Mm. But it's still it, it's it's his worst film by I think a long stretch. And mm. I just I, I I struggle to see Gilliam in there. I, I see a guy doing an impression of Gilliam. You're right, his vision isn't terribly 
clear in that film, and it could be someone doing a Terry Gilliam, mm. certainly, you know, karaoke Gilliam. And, and sorry, a lot of that, so we should say up front, comes from the the fact that he was butting heads with the studio yeah. so much. With the Weinsteins. With the yeah. Weinsteins. His decisions kept getting knocked back. Uh, yeah, he says it's the one film he kind of lost. Yeah. Lost the battle on. I don't, you know, I don't actually hate that film. I was really yeah. expecting to. Um, and went back and watched it again. It doesn't make much sense. No. It, it doesn't have the same sort of visual flair as much of his other films, but it's such a good idea that um, I was kind of happy to stick with it. For okay. I feel it's his equal worst film, and I feel that it comes with this year, the year in which it was made, and, or released, I should say, and I think a lot of... Both films, I think. This one more so, though, is just a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm. There's a lot going on visually, and everybody's working really hard, and in the end, what does it all mean? What is it all... Where are we all going? What is this all leading to? And in the end, it's just kind of... There's nothing to actually hook onto. Everybody's moving too damn fast. Tideland, however, released the same year, isn't that far removed. This is a twisted kids Fantasia dealing with a father's death but a life that's sort of I guess unconventional and rickety as is I just found again but I I got the feeling again that Gilliam really wants to show a film from a kid's point of view but but when the kid doesn't seem to make emotional connections to anything Mm. is living from fantasy to fantasy moment to moment why would you tell the story yeah, well, I'm not even sure what the story is really there. I mean, it's it's a film that I I like the look of. I like the whole feel, you know, the prairies and the, um, the dry grass and the train and the deserted bus. I love all that stuff. But the first half is a girl playing with her toys and presumably imagining things. Is she imagining them? I'm not sure. There was no real sense of drama or even the, the potential of drama. No, there, there's really. no stakes. There's no um, momentum to anything. You know, it's her mother dies and she's like, oh, don't worry about that. Yeah. You know, is, is that really a problem? Father Dad dies. dies. Yeah. Is that really a problem? Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure there's what he's trying to say there is that we're resilient or the children are particularly resilient or something like that. But it, it comes across as her being a, an uh, unsympathetic character. And um, a nutcase. And a bit of a nutcase. And I'm not sure who we're supposed to really engage with in in that film. I love Tideland. Uh, I saw it twice. Really? I I think it's superb. Um, I think it's an incredibly brave film. And I think it's a very clear, not aesthetically, but subtextually clear continuation of Gilliam's themes, which is that kids are fine. They don't need changing. The world needs changing and these kids are going to do it. And that's a bit children are our future. But... <laughs> She doesn't really have a journey to go on, but everyone around her does, and they're affected by her. I really responded to it. I still think it's a great film. I, I really like your reading film. of it, and I, I agree that it is consistent, that it, it feels... It um, it doesn't wander all over the place in the way that some of his others do, but it just it didn't really go anywhere enough for me. And I, I, mm. d- I wanted... I mean, I like your idea of her needing to change and the characters around her needing to change more, but I didn't really get a sense of, of them really interacting with her enough no. or being affected by her enough. I don't get the they, sense of them changing her. No, they just yeah. seemed strange and I weren't sure if they were figments of her imagination at some point or um, mm. exactly what was going on. But uh, you're taking it. Almost makes me want to see it again. Four years later, 2009, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, mm. uh, which if, it, if they just released the title instead of the film, I would have given it, you know, five <laughs> stars, best of the year. I love that title. Yeah. I love that it's 
it feels like it's an old story, an old fairy tale adapted, but it's a completely original. Yeah. Aside from the, the, the trope of making a deal with the devil, it's all completely original. It's certainly my favourite film of his since, um, since Twelve Monkeys. It, again, suffers from some of the issues that I think are just um, particularly evident in films he's written himself. Mm. I think the first 25 minutes is unnecessary. I think starting that film with the scene on the bridge where you've got a weird caravan being pulled through this um, modern city. And I love that. I love the juxtapositions of uh, of this fantasy existence with a very real um, London. You know, there's the scene in a a car park outside a gardening shop. Mm. You know, the scenes outside pubs. There's um, a lot of it's shot in the wreckage of Battersea Power Station. I love that, that part of it. But I still think that if it started with the caravan going across the bridge, seeing the guy hanging there, you've got a really intriguing opening mm. to that film. Instead, you're spending 25 minutes before that going, this is all weird, but you know, I'm not sure what's going on. It looks nice. <laughs> um, where's the story? <laughs> and, and to me, that's, it's, this thing that's constantly frustrating about his films. And I, I, I mean, I say this to someone who loves his films, that you do spend the first half hour with most of them going, What's the story here? <laughs> you know, there's all this wonderful well, world on point. background. It's you know he's an animator, and it's the aesthetic weirdness that he likes. Yeah. and and I think yeah, he's more a director than a writer. He's I, still definitely yeah. an auteur, but you know. Yeah, and you see him. Well, you see him. I think in Jabberwocky, you see him resisting the story mm-hmm. that you've got this character who's trying to go on the hero's quest. And he keeps going, no, 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 that, no, you're not there yet. No. Here, we're let's not ready for you to do the quest. And then there's 15 <laughs> minutes left of the film. Okay, off we go. We're on the hero's let's quest. Let's spend some time in this weird court of, with this king and these <laughs> exactly. people bowing to him. The, yeah. The announcer. And it's, it, Parnassus, I, I actually really, really enjoyed the first two-thirds of this. Mm. Again, it, it feels like old-school Gilliam. It yeah. feels like Gilliam re- 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 retaining control of his aesthetic and making these startling visuals it sort of harkened back to Munchausen in Brazil it's an original fairy tale that feels like a fairy tale of sorts and I love as you say Mike I love the juxtapositions between London and this kind of old world and it's this Mm. and it's very much a self-image film too I think Gilliam sees himself as Dr. Parnassus Mm. sees himself that's presenting this pure sort of form of storytelling that people today just aren't interested in anymore. Yeah. Mm. And it's that orneriness of Gilliam really punching through in this film. And that you need somebody to, like Heath Ledger, you need to bring them in to draw the crowds in. Yeah. Yes. And make yes. yes, exactly. And I, I think on that level, Parnassus mm. is fascinating. Yeah. And I guess on those levels alone, it's his best film since, since um, yeah. uh, at least Heat and Fear and Loathing, if not 12 Monkeys. However, I feel... Again, Gilliam, the great, the immense talent and the little control. I think he has a brain explosion in the final act. And the <laughs> film just goes in rah, directions. And it just, it feels like, it, yeah, the film just runs wild and ceases making any sort of sense. And yeah. Just kind of peters out. I don't, yeah, I don't agree. I don't agree. I, I, I like where it goes in the final act and I find it, again, quite consistent. But, you know, for years people would talk about the Gilliam curse, particularly in the wake of of uh, Don Quixote and everyone kind of stopped after Imaginarium because of course it was the film that Heath Ledger died halfway through filming Mm. and it kind of became a bit too it wasn't something you really wanted to joke about anymore but the real testament to Gilliam has always been you know how he picks himself up after a failure or, or you know a disaster or whatever and the way he dealt with Ledger's death and 
with half the film not being shot. It feels so consistent with the story mm. that you mm. can't believe they hadn't planned to do that exact yeah. thing from the beginning. It does. It feels very meaningful, the idea of this man with the different faces. I, I really love that aspect. I, I, I love so much about that film. Yeah. I love the idea of the story being so important, that the stories need to be told or the universe collapses. But at the same time, that's what that film's really is lacking is the, the, the proper, for me, a, a good, strong a sense cohesive of story. story yeah. Where I, I want to go, well, hang on, how do you get the souls? What, what, what is a soul? Because mm. you know, these, these people come back out and they seem okay, so have they mm. left their souls behind? And, and I can uh, tolerate a certain amount of not sure. knowing what's going on. Yeah, I'd rather, there's a fantastic saying by, um, I think, the writer Paul Abbott, or possibly Jimmy McGovern, uh, <laughs> that they'd rather be bored for, um, or confused for 10 minutes than bored for 10 seconds and I, mm. I, I subscribe mm. to that too I think it's a great idea but being confused for uh, two hours <laughs> is, is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch I, I, like Paul I love the first two thirds of that film despite saying that it probably could have been cut <laughs> I still love all that stuff mm. and it's only when he really just goes into the full flight of imagination and the stuff with the stilts and all that mm. that I start to go oh what does this does this mean where are we where are we going here yeah. Um, and I'd, I would love to see that imagination just tied down to the story a bit more and just a, a lot of that is evident in the fact that so many of the films we've cited as his best works have been written by other people yeah. Yeah. and he's he can kind of unleash that directorial creativity once someone else has sort of worked on the script and it's usually yeah. for a studio too somebody mm. that's keeping him Mm. Rain, yeah. And yet, Brothers Grimm disproves both of those. So <laughs> yeah. you yeah. can't. There's no hard and fast rule. Um, <laughs> other than I really, really hope he makes other films, and really, really hope that one of them is Don Quixote. Well, he's seventy-one. Like you know, he hasn't got a billion years left. Get on a Quixote. Have put you, it in all that. Yeah. Have you seen how he looks? Well, he I looks, think he's got a billion years left. He, he <laughs> kind of looks very healthy for his age, doesn't he? Yeah. He's a I think he's made a deal of a with Tom Waits. I think. <laughs> I think at the end, though, and, and you get this from watching, um, you know, I've trawled through the documentaries on the various discs, mm. and you get a sense that often the story behind the making of the film, and certainly, of course, Lost in La Mancha bears this out, is, is often just as interesting, and sometimes more so, than what you actually get on screen, that his artistic process is terrifying. And, and I think you, you touched on this, Lee, this idea that he sees the way that he deals with problems, that, that gen- day-to-day... Um, issues obviously that filmmaking brings up is relentlessly inventive but um but mad as mm. well it's this, this man constantly butting his head against the real world mm. you know trying to you know the real world keeps throwing problems at him and he just keeps trying to um go ever more crazy to get a, get away from them well he's he's absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite filmmakers and mm. thank you for choosing him coming oh, on. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad that you were pleased. I, he's one that I often bring up to people and they, they look slightly worried. <laughs> you know, uh, I go, you know, who's a director you like? Oh, I really like Terry Gilliam. Go, oh, really? It's, it's like he's, you know, perhaps it's the curse of Terry Gilliam. Is it okay to say you like him? Is he like the Scottish <laughs> Well, it'll be player? struck down. Will yeah, all my exactly. movies never get finished? Yeah. The Python director, yes. Yeah. Um, but just, he was, he's one that, as I said when we started talking about him, just had such an influence on me. Just what's possible, I think, in storytelling. Um, for all my criticisms of the way that he sometimes does tell stories, just the sheer nerve with which he, he takes on um, the project is uh, an inspiration. Mm. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll we see w- the rest of the next year. Happy New Year, everybody. Keep watching stuff. Yeah.